Good morning, everyone. Good. I'm glad you can hear. That's actually the one thing, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to when we don't have to wear the masks anymore is the, uh, the dance of getting the microphone on and around the glasses and things as well. So. You've probably heard of uh, Professor Stephen Hawking. He was an astrophysicist at Cambridge University. He was kind of widely regarded as one of the most intelligent human beings on the planet when he was alive. He, uh, he did a lot of theoretical physics, which I don't even pretend that I understand. He was a very, very clever man. But for most of his life, he suffered. He suffered with ALS syndrome, and he was confined to a wheelchair. He was confined to a wheelchair that he had to control with a little joystick. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't even speak without the aid of a computerized device that he moved his fingertips to operate. Too weak to feed himself. Too weak to comb his hair. Too weak to sort out the classes that he taught. And yet, what was his outlook on life? He said this in an interview that was quoted in 1994. When one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. When one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. I'm reading that article where that was quoted. I'm reading the verses in Revelation that we're looking at this morning. I wanted to ask, when we face as Christians trials and tribulations and suffering, what's our outlook? Where do we look to when we face those kinds of opposition? We're not confined to those electronic wheelchairs. Nobody in this room is. We're probably not facing being thrown into prison for 10 days. And we'll come and look at what that means, because it isn't just being put into the, into the jail cell in Galway Garda Station. It means more than that. And we'll come back to that in a minute. We're not facing these things. But we do face temptation to sin. We do have times when our relationships and our friendships are strained. We have times when going to school or university or our work just aren't fulfilling for us. And we do have times when we face opposition for what we believe and when we stand up for what we believe. So how do we face that kind of opposition? How do we face those trials and tribulations and those sufferings? Are we afraid or are we prepared? Do we roll over and let those trials that get in, in our way in life set us back in our relationship with God? Do we focus down in on ourselves and our homes here? Or do we look up? Do we stand firm and look to Christ with hope and with positivity and focus on our home in heaven? 
So as we, as we think about these verses, I want you to be thinking about that in your mind. Where, where is it you look when you face these trials and tribulations? Do you look inwards or do you look up and out to heaven? I'm going to read again the verses that, that Jason read for us. There's only four of them, so it's really helpful just to be familiar with them as we start to look at them in more detail. And then, and then we'll just pray again as well. So Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just as we, as we start to look at these verses again in detail, let's just... Just spend a moment in prayer before we do. Lord, we thank you that we do have this time just to concentrate on your word. Lord, as Jason prayed, I just, I just pray that you would speak through me now. I pray that you'd speak to me and to everybody else who's listening either in this room or, or online and that we would all be challenged by these words, Lord. And we'd all learn from these words of Jesus to this church in Smyrna. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help to teach us things that we can take away from here for today, for tomorrow, for the week ahead, Lord. Amen. So as Jason said, there's these, uh, there's these letters to the, um, a group of churches at the beginning of Revelation in chapters 2 and three, and this week we're looking at the, uh, the letter that is written to the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Now, Smyrna was a, a Greek city. It was a strategic port, and I don't want to go too much into a, into a history lesson, but in AD 23, there was a temple built there to the emperor, the Roman emperor, Tiberius, and to his mother, Julia, and that was built there as part of this emperor worship cult that was developing. So the idea was that the Romans would kind of, the, the emperor became a godlike figure and it kind of started with, with, uh, with Tiberius and moved through a lot of the other emperors as well. And so, so the Romans were kind of worshiping Tiberius. It was a Greek city and the Greeks had all their gods. And then there's this church. And as we saw, as we read through there, there's obviously a Jewish population as well. You can actually go and visit Smyrna today. It's in, it's in Turkey. It's, uh, it's known as Izmir now. And you can go off and, and visit it if you, uh, if you want to once uh, COVID's less of an issue. We don't know a huge amount about this church. But we do know that they are facing trial and tribulation. Those are the words that Jesus says to them at the start of verse 9. I know your tribulation. They're facing slander, and they're facing persecution, possibly even 
to death. And last week, if you, uh, if you heard the, the service last week, uh, Jason went through kind of giving us a brief outline of how Jesus talks to the different churches. And in most of the letters, there's a rebuke to the church that says, here's something you're doing wrong, something that you're doing that I want you to change. That's missing here. Smyrna is one of the two churches that, de- uh, that Jesus doesn't rebuke. Instead, he opens with these words that he uses to encourage them. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is using these words here to show that he rules over all eternity, the beginning and the end. And not just what's happened, not just the situation that the church in Smyrna finds itself in right now, but everything they're going to face in the 10 days that are coming that Jesus talks about later on in this passage and all of their future for all eternity. Jesus is their eternal redeemer, their eternal king, and their eternal savior. Who died and came to life. The first and the last who died and came to life. And notice there's a past tense here. This has happened. This has happened. Jesus died and came back to life. He's prepared the way for them. He's gone through death ahead of them as they face this persecution. And he's been raised up again to resurrection life. John's already written about this earlier on in Revelation in chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18 when he first sees the vision of the risen Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. To this church facing persecution, facing persecution even to death, this is offered as a reassurance that Jesus has gone before them, that Jesus faced trials and tribulations even to death but has gone before them into resurrection life and has paved the way for them to go to heaven. And Jesus says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. They're materially poor. They don't have a lot of resources. There's some implication there that actually it's the persecution that is making them poor. Maybe they can't go about their work and so they can't, They can't feed themselves as well as they might or look after themselves as well as they might materially. But what does Jesus say? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. They're spiritually rich despite the material poorness that they have. Again, it's implied that the the opposition, the persecution is making them spiritually rich as they draw closer to God in facing it, as they look up and out to face the persecution 
rather than down and inwards. And we can, we can look at other verses in the New Testament that, that talk about this. James chapter 2 and verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Or from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're all actually in the world materially rich. Even those of us who who might feel like, compared to each other, we're materially poor, we're materially rich. Sometimes we can say we have all we want. Sometimes we can want more than we have. C.S. Lewis, who I make no apology that I'm going to come back to C.S. Lewis several times this morning, wrote this once. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something, but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. As this church faces there the slander, the tribulation, the persecution, and become materially poor, they rely on God and become spiritually rich. Their hands are not full of their material goods. And so, as Augustine says in that quote, there's somewhere for God to pour out that spiritual richness to. They're not distracted by the material world. And this tribulation that Jesus talks of, there's a synagogue, there's a group of Jews in Smyrna that are, that are pushing slander onto the church. The, the word that John writes to here in Greek for slander, it translates as, as blasphemy, the action of speaking um, sacrilegiously about God. And so Jesus condemns this group of Jews who are at the root of the, the, the tribulation, the root of the slander. And look at, that, look at that phrase that he uses. Them, uses. He says, they are, uh, who say they are Jews but are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Jesus just pushes them as far away as he can. So these are not the true people of God. They're not the true people of God. They're, they're speaking out against the true and faithful church of God, blaspheming him. Again, Jesus spoke about this in, in John chapter 16, where he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And so maybe they do think they're doing the right thing, speaking out against this group of Christians, but Jesus says, no, no, they're not. The church is the true follower of Jesus, this church in Smyrna. So knowing, having given them this encouragement that Jesus has eternal rule, that he's gone before them into death and resurrection life, that he knows the trials and tribulations and slander they face, what does Jesus say to this church in Smyrna? Do not fear. 
Do not fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And there's a force behind this command that Jesus issues at the start of verse 10. Stop being afraid of anyone or anything, is what Jesus is saying. That's the force of this. Stop being afraid of anyone or anything. So Jesus is really forceful in this command. And what is it that they're not to be afraid of? What's the, uh, what's the specific that Jesus goes with here? Do not fear what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tri tribulation. The suffering is imminent. It's imminent. It's, it's going to happen soon. You are about to suffer, Jesus says. This is on its way. It's unavoidable as well. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This suffering is imminent and unavoidable. It's interesting that in the previous verse, when Jesus is condemning the, the Jews in Smyrna, he says, they're a synagogue of Satan, and he uses a different word here, the devil, as the one who's about to throw them into, into prison. Because here the word devil translates as adversary or slanderer. So we're going back, looking at what it is that they're facing, and the enemy, Satan, the other name for him here, the devil, he's the one who's behind it, slandering, being the adversary. And they get to be thrown in prison. Now I said before, this isn't like, say, one of us just gets picked up for whatever by the guards and put into prison for 10 days with some food and some water, and we're let off to go again because there's no charge. The Romans did not imprison people to get them off the streets. If you were, if you were in the Roman Empire and you were thrown into prison, you were awaiting trial or you were awaiting execution. This incarceration that they're facing is serious, really, really serious. As Jesus says, it could lead to their death. But, but, it's limited in time. There is an end. That you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. There is an 11th day. There is the promise of an 11th day when the trial and tribulation will end. This idea uh, kind of it reflects some of um, what we see in Daniel chapter 1, where there's a brief testing of the servants of God. There's a brief testing uh, there. And at the end, they come out of it looking better in appearance than all of those who had eaten the king's food uh, as they only ate the food that they were happy eating in worship of God. So there's this time of testing. 
But even though it looks as though, from a human perspective, it's the Jews and the devil, Satan, who are driving all of this, God is in control. God is at work and in control because there is this promise of the 11th day when the trials and tribulation ends. Some of them, some of this church in Smyrna are going to be called home to heaven at that point. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's a time when some of them are going to be called home to heaven at the end of this tribulation. So it's not necessarily going to end in their release, their physical release, but it might end in their spiritual release and they're going home to heaven. And so what are they called to? They're called to be faithful and to endure, putting all of their trust in God to go through this situation of suffering. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And he replied, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. Here, there is a time of testing. But Jesus knows that some of them, at least, will persevere, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We see the devil in action, testing, throwing them into prison. But it's God's intention that they, that they will come through, some of them at least, and be given the prize, given the crown of life. The enemy is strong, but God is stronger. And so they're called to be faithful, even to death. And if they overcome this time of trial and tribulation, Jesus will give them the reward of the crown of life. The reward which God gives to those who persevere in love for him to the end. Now the idea here for the crown of life comes from the laurel crowns that were given out at the games in Smyrna. So I brought some illustrations. That, that is a medal that I was given for finishing the London Marathon. For finishing. For persevering to the end of 26.2 miles. But you didn't win the laurel wreath for finishing the race. When I was digging that medal out, I found this tiny little thing. And that's actually a team gold medal from the county half marathon championships or something. But you had to win the race to be given that laurel wreath. We can be tempted. We can be tempted just to think we need to get to the finishing line. But Paul writes this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Jesus is calling them to persevere, to persevere to the end, to, to win the finisher's medal. But he wants us to give our all so that we can win the gold medal, the wreath, the crown of life. He wants us to give our very best to him and not just, not just do enough. He wants us to give our all. And so the church in Smyrna may be hurt by martyrdom, but they won't be destroyed by it. The second death will not harm those who obey the words of Jesus and faithfully endure. And if you want to read on to Revelation 20, you can, you can read about that, that second death there. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, you will be hurt by that second death. If you're tempted to give up on Jesus this morning, you will be hurt by that second death. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus, I would urge you to talk to one of us who've been up at the front, maybe afterwards, or send us a message if that's something that you want to talk about more. But their true life, the this church of Smyrna, their true life is guaranteed by God who raised Jesus from the dead. So just briefly to finish, where does that leave us this morning? Nobody said it was going to be easy being a Christian. Sometimes it's harder than we thought it was going to be. Sometimes we face these trials and tribulations. Maybe, maybe this morning you think about identifying with our brothers and sisters out in the world who can't meet like we can because their church is being persecuted. Maybe this morning you recognize that eventually we might face the same kinds of persecution here. Maybe this morning you're facing trials that are tempting you away from Jesus. Maybe, maybe this morning you're looking inside and asking how many compromises you've made to avoid hostility towards your faith in your day-to-day -day life. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe, maybe you don't have trials and tribulations at the moment, but you must be ready. We must be ready and learn to live with the prospect that we will face suffering. Nowhere in the Bible are we guaranteed an easy ride from the moment we become a Christian, the moment we start following Jesus, to the moment of our death, to the moment we go to heaven. In fact, without a huge amount of suffering, without Jesus 
going through a trial where he was whipped and forced to wear a crown of thorns and executed. There is no crown of life for us to have. Jesus suffered so that we might live. George MacDonald, who was a 19th century Scottish author and minister, put it like this, the Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. And there was an article on the Huffington Post website where the author said this, when you worship a suffering Messiah, it sure changes a lot about how you view suffering yourself. See, Jesus, the suffering servant who went to the cross to die for you and for me and for the church in Smyrna is our Lord. Is our Lord just as much as he is the Lord of the church in Smyrna. Just as he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who died and came to life for them. He died and came to life for me and for you. And that exact same encouragement that he gave to them as they faced slander and persecution is there for you and for me as we face the different trials and tribulations of going out into the world and living our lives. And just as for that church in Smyrna, there was an 11th day promise. Something better at the end of the suffering. So too there is for you and for me. As we've been reading through Romans, Paul wrote this in Romans 8 and verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that will be revealed in us on the last day. So Jesus this morning reminds us not to be discouraged as we face trials and tribulations. Even if we face the ultimate persecution, even if we face death because of our belief in him. We might not see the answers to our prayers to release from our suffering until we make it to heaven. But when we're there, God will release us from all our suffering. This isn't easy. It's my natural response when I face difficult times to look down and to look in and to look to my own strength. But Jesus is asking us not to be fearful, but to be faithful. And instead of looking inside, to look up and look at him and focus not on the here and the now and the difficulties of the next hour or the next day, but to look at our true home in heaven, declaring aloud praise and glory, wisdom and thanks to be to our God forever and ever, as we sang just before. I'm just going to close with an, another quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a lot about suffering, 
He wrote a lot about facing times where he wasn't enjoying his life. But he looked to God. So I'm just going to read, read from him as we finish. The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We're never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bathe or a football match have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for heaven and for home. And as we face our trials and tribulations, we mustn't mistake those for home because our home is with God in heaven. And we need to persevere with him, focusing on him, focusing up and out together to persevere through the trials and tribulations we face in the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the encouragement from Jesus to that church in Smyrna. Lord, we thank you for the words he spoke. We thank you for his eternal rule. We thank you that we can trust in you, we can trust in Jesus, knowing Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the eternal Savior. Lord, whatever we face as we leave this room this morning, help us to know that you are in control. That by being the eternal Savior, it's not just the past and this moment that you're in control of, but the future. And Lord, I pray that for anybody who's going to leave here knowing they're going to face trials, knowing they're going to face suffering, knowing there's, there's something that they're going to come up with today, tomorrow, this week, that could rock them, that could try to draw them away from you. Lord, I pray that they would know that promise of an 11th day, know that promise that their trials and tribulations will end. And Lord, I pray that they would look to you focus on you and focus on the day that all their trials and tribulations will end and they'll be with you in heaven. 